0: Welcome to the How to Be Awesome at Your Job podcast. The show where brilliant professionals share how to sharpen the universal skills required to flourish at work. Enjoy more career fun, wins, meaning, and money. With your host, Pete Mikaitis.
1: Hello, and thanks for joining us here for episode 570 with Shane Snow. Shane is talking about how you can... Be all the more persuasive and likable and connectable if you use stories as you share your key messages. So you'll learn, one, why storytelling isn't just for writers, two, the four elements of the most captivating stories, and three, the surprisingly best way to improve at storytelling. So if you want to check out the show notes or the transcript or the links to items we've referenced, visit awesomeatyourjob.com ep, that's the Letters EP, 570, as in episode 570. You can probably also see them if you expand the show notes or episode description in your podcast app player of choice, but some app players, unfortunately, don't have clickable links and uh, it's not as grand an experience as what you'll see over at awesomeatyourjob.com slash app570, but it might be more convenient. Give it a shot. Anywho, here's Shane's story. Shane Snow is an award-winning journalist, explorer, and entrepreneur and author. He speaks globally about innovation and teamwork, has performed comedy on Broadway, and been in the running for the Pulitzer Prize for investigative journalism. Snow has helped expose gun traffickers, explored abandoned buildings around the world, eaten only ice cream for weeks in the name of science, and taught hundreds of thousands of people to work better through his books, including the number one business bestseller Dream Teams. Snow's writing has appeared in GQ, Fast Company, Wired, The New Yorker, and more. He is also a member of the media technology company Contently, and the journalism nonprofit, The Hatch Institute. Big thanks to Shane for sharing his wisdom with us and big thanks to our sponsors. Check them out Here is Shane. Shane, thanks for joining us here on the How Do You Awesome Make Your Job podcast.
2: I'm really happy to be here.
1: Well, I'm excited to talk to you. One of your areas of deep expertise is storytelling. And I want to put you on the spot uh, right up front and say, could you open us up by sharing one of the most compelling short stories you've ever heard? And then tell us why it's compelling.
2: <laughs> oh, wow. One of the most compelling short stories I've ever heard How about I tell the short version of one of the most compelling stories I've ever read? All right. So Gene Weingarten is a Washington Post reporter who's won the Pulitzer Prize twice and one of my favorite writers. And his best story, in my opinion, is the story of The Great Zucchini, who is the premier children's entertainer in Washington, D.C. If you are having a birthday party and your kid is under 11, then you invite the Great Zucchini to come and do his clown performance. He, he does magic and tricks. And, uh, and what the story of the Great Zucchini is, is that he was the, the most in demand, most popular uh, children's entertainer in all of DC. If you were a senator, your kid had to have him and you would fight with the parents at the prep schools to get the Great Zucchini on your kid's birthday. And the story though, is that the Great Zucchini was so great with kids not because his props were good or his act was particularly good. He was actually really sloppy and his stuff was all old. But he was so great with kids because it turns out that he had an incredibly messed up childhood and could relate to kids in in a very deep way. And what happened is, uh, is this reporter followed the Great Zucchini around and discovered that in his apartment, there is no bed. There's just like a blanket on the floor and there is a closet full of envelopes and bills and collector's notices and nothing else. And that on the weekends, the great zucchini goes to Atlantic City and gambles and blows all of his money and comes home hungover and depressed, ready to go entertain children. And, uh, and so the story actually, which started out as, well, how is this guy so great? You know, What are the makings of a great children's entertainer You know, that you want at birthday parties and that can entertain kids turned into a story of how a tragic childhood had created this uh, this person who kids loved so much, but who actually was deeply, deeply hurt and wounded, um, and and was having a terrible time himself. And, and what the story points to is how one we we never know what's going on behind the scenes of someone who appears to be very successful. Who we might be jealous of you know other clowns hate this guy by the way because he's so mm-hmm. so popular and kids love him. But, uh, but no one had any idea that, that this guy, you know, slept with a blanket on the floor and, uh, and blew all his money on gambling and had like terrible anxiety. Um, they just thought that he was he's really good at what he does and super successful. And I think the, uh, the other sort of lesson of the story is what happened afterwards, which is the this, this story came out and, uh, and The Great Zucchini, I forget his actual name, um, but he was so worried that the story would come out and it would ruin his career. That people wouldn't want their kids having you know mm-hmm. contact with him because uh, he was a mess. And uh, and actually, people kind of turned showed up for him after the story, and their hearts went out to him, and and uh, and people helped him get his finances in order. Like people volunteered to help this guy out, basically, mm-hmm. when he thought that the opposite would happen—that people would keep their kids away from him. So it speaks to I think humanity how learning his story and I'm telling this story on purpose because it's meta, learning the story of this guy, flaws and all, actually caused people to care more about him. So often we worry that when people learn who we really are and our real stories that they won't care about us because we're flawed, but it turns out that the opposite is usually true with humans. Mm. yeah.
1: Well, now I have to go read it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank fantastic. you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I've got so many follow-ups, but, uh, you know, we're not talking about the great zucchini. <laughs> we're talking about storytelling. But yeah, I mean, there, you're right. There's a great lesson right there in terms of, you know, we're worried about sharing, revealing those things, but it can really be warmly received. People can relate to you all the more in terms of, yes, I too have some stuff that's messed up. You are like me and that's vulnerable to relatable and stuff so well let's maybe talk a little bit about the why in terms of you know storytelling i mean it's cool and fun for undercover and investigative journalists and hollywood types can you make the case for why storytelling is a valuable skill for your everyday professional
2: absolutely there's a reason why stories work on us why we get pulled in and it's actually built into our brains Uh, the human brain is wired for a story. And there's a couple of of reasons, you know, whether you're taking the uh, the evolutionary biology approach um, and saying, well, humans, you know, evolved to need certain skills that are useful. Or if you're just looking at the phenomenon of we get pulled in by stories, um, either way, you can come to two conclusions very quickly when you look at how humans respond to stories. One is that stories make us remember information better. So, you know, historically, if you wanted to pass down knowledge to your tribe or to your family, you often did so using stories around the campfire. So if, if I give you a statistic and show you a bunch of charts, you'll remember them a lot worse, uh, retain that information a lot worse than if I uh, tell you a story that illustrates the statistics. Um, you know, one great study that comes to mind is uh, about research split testing, ads for charities when you can, you can show people an ad for a charity and, and talk about all of the you know, kids that get leukemia and how few of them survive and how horrible it is. Or you can show them a story of a parent talking about their child that has leukemia. And in that kind of split test, always the story will get more donations and more percentage of people will donate. Uh, the story makes you care in addition to making you remember. So those are kind of the yeah. two functions of, uh, of storytelling that are built into just how our brains react
1: uh, to things. We, we had a Gret Glyer of Donor C on the show who kind of does just that, You know, in terms of donation to impoverished areas. And, and you could see as a donor, Donor C, mm-hmm. what impact you're making. And, and that was a lesson he learned early on is that the stories did a whole lot more than the statistics. And I think in the Bill Gates documentary on Netflix, he says, hey, if you talk about like a thousand people dying of something, we should be a thousand times as sad, but somehow yeah. we just don't work that way. I don't know if you happen to know the results of these split tests, but can you give us a sense of order of magnitude? Do the stories outperform like, yeah, five, 10% better? They're getting some statistical significance or are they just like walloping, you know, the statistics?
2: Yeah, I, I off the top of my head for a particular study, I couldn't say, but it's like double. Uh, there like you go. on that in order. that
1: ballpark of double, all right, yeah, that's good enough for me
2: and so it gets at you know the question you're asking is is how can stories help us regular people if we're not making movies or you know writing articles uh, you know for newspapers and it's uh, it's those two things so if you want people to remember what you want them to remember, what you want them to know, you have something to say, you want it to be memorable, and if you want people to care about what you have to say, and storytelling is an incredibly powerful way to uh, make both of those things happen. So if you're a salesperson, you want people to care about your product, you want them to remember you and, and the things that it can do for you. If you are trying to build a relationship with someone, you know, personally or professionally, stories, sharing stories, and uh, and specifically stories with certain elements, which I'd, I'd love to talk about. Um uh, mm-hmm will make them remember you and make them want to do business with you or want to you know, form a relationship with you more than than any other thing. If you go on a date with someone that you want to impress, um, talking about how much money you have or spending money on them is going to be less effective at making them want to be close to you than if you share stories about your life and things you care about.
1: And how much money you... Spent on your jet. <laughs> if you, you, know, if
2: the story ends with, and then I bought a jet, and do you want to go on it? You know, maybe there's like some adventure to that that's <laughs> intriguing. But you know, it's what we do on on dates so when we get to know people is share stories. What we do around the dinner table when we're bonding with our families is share the stories of what happened to us or the stories that we're watching. You know, we bond around stories that aren't even about us, and this brings humans together and makes them care about each other.
3: Hmm.
1: Okay. Well, that sounds. I like a lot of good things that uh, I'd like going on both in life and in career. So let's dig into some of those components. What makes a story effective in these ways? I guess you could say we might call a story effective in the sense of it keeps you engaged and interested. So, I mean, that's Mm -hmm. part of the game. I'm sure that's probably part of what you're going to tell us. But uh, I guess I mean effective in the sense of it yields those benefits. It is memorable. It does draw people to be closer to you and form a, a bond and a respect for you. So lay it on us, what are the key principles?
2: Yep, so we can now actually watch people's brains when they, you know, watch a TV commercial or listen to an audiobook or have an interaction with their spouse. Uh, and we can measure certain effects that indicate whether memory encoding is going on um, and whether they are immersed in the experience and immersion in sort of the crude neuroscience Uh, term is like that thing that happens when you're watching a a James Bond movie and suddenly someone coughs and you realize you're watching a movie. Um, You have forgotten where you are. You've forgotten that you're sitting on a couch and you have people next to you um, because you're so pulled into the movie or the story. So we can actually measure how much uh, of that immersion you have. We can measure the emotional effect uh, that you're having. and, And we can actually measure a couple of things. How deep of an emotional experience you're having, not necessarily, you know, we can't do a brain scan or, you know, or, or monitor your vital signs and, and tell that you're sad versus happy necessarily. Uh, but we can tell that you are deeply emotionally affected in some direction. Um, and then there are, are other cues that we can look at to see if you're affected in a negative or positive way. So are you crying because you're happy or are you crying because you're, you're upset? And, uh, and when we look at, these signals, um, while people watch movies or listen to stories or talk to each other, tell each other stories. There are some very clear things that uh, that achieve memory encoding and uh, and basically caring. Um, oxytocin is the uh, the neurochemical that people always talk about with storytelling. It's the neurochemical that indicates that you care about something. Um, it's involved in emotion and you know, social bonding and including people and excluding people. So if you can detect that there's more oxytocin being synthesized in someone's brain, you can detect that they care, that they're having an an empathetic experience one way or another. So the things that lead to these um, are are actually pretty basic, and they can go pretty deep. But uh, but there's four of them that I I usually uh, talk about as the the biggest ones. Um, Relatability. So if you can relate to a character or a situation um, then your, your brain perks up. You, you will encode, or at least start to encode into memory and start to care. Um, so if there's a story about something that you have never heard of and there's nothing to hook onto, then it's, it's hard to relate to, then it's hard to care, and it's, it's hard to remember. Um, but the flip side of that is novelty, that our, our brains are wired to pay extra attention to new things that could be useful or could be harmful. So that was like the prehistoric version of this would be an object is moving towards you very quickly is it a threat or is it something that i can kill and eat. And so our brains are programmed to pay attention to new things and uh and so if something is a story is relatable, you know, has characters that uh that you might care about because you can relate to them or they remind you of people you know or whatever it is, um situations that are familiar and there's something new about it, then we, we really get hooked. And, uh, and we start to pay attention. Our brains can start to encode the memories. Um, then you add in what I call fluency, which is basically making it easy to understand what's going on. Um, the easier something is to understand, the more you'll encode it.
1: So not like a lot of jargon or yes. quantum physics or derivative trading financial yes. stuff. Exactly. So not those. Or simplified.
2: Yeah. After I show the fourth one, I'll actually tell you about a study that, uh, that I conducted with one of my, my writing partners that illustrates these in action right now as it has to do with, uh, with TV commercials. Uh, but the fourth element is, I think, the most important one for getting people to really care, um, and that's tension. So it's establishing that there's a big gap between what you want and what you have or what is and what could be. You
1: see? I'm sorry. I knew you were going to say tension and I thought that you were going to like stringing me out a little,
2: <laughs> little bit to build. A...
1: Yeah, it. Okay. It. <laughs> I'm with you again. Thank you.
2: <laughs> yeah. So, so, you know, one of the best ways to, you know, set up tension is to, is to establish characters want something and it's going to be really hard to get it or it seems impossible or death is on the line. Um, so with the story of the Great zucchini it's it's one of my favorites in part because uh, it has all of those things um, and it's it's easy for me to remember because it's a great story. but mm-hmm. it's like yeah, everyone's been a kid, everyone knows children's parties, um, you know magicians and clowns like there's something that you can kind of like hook onto and be intrigued by um, but the you know the novelty and the tension is that this guy's a mess and should you know kids be around him and like what's gonna happen to him. Um, and uh, you know his life's falling apart. That tension makes you intrigued enough to want to keep going with the story and find out what it is, even if the ending is uh, not even that exciting. You stick it out to the end because because at that point you do care. So the the study that that I recently ran with my my co-author for the book The Storytelling Edge and uh, one of my longtime collaborators, we ran a study um, a few months ago where we looked at campaign ads for um, Democratic primary contenders. So whoever it is that's going to go up against Donald Trump, um, what are the ads that they're, they're showing people and how effective is the storytelling? And, um, and what we found, and this was a, at the time when everyone had written off Joe Biden, uh, that you know he's definitely not going to win anymore. Everyone had written him off and, uh, and we, we found that despite what people said in the surveys, uh, the pre-survey before you watch these commercials, and we interspersed the commercials between like bad television, like CSI, and, uh, <laughs> and in between you got these commercial breaks with these political ads. And we asked people, what do you think of Joe Biden? What do you think of Elizabeth Warren? What do you think of Bernie Sanders? Um, who are you going to vote for? How you know, left or right leaning are you? All these things even though so many people, you know, uh, Joe Biden did not win the poll, you know, essentially in this pre-survey, he overwhelmingly won the good feelings uh, study from a neuroscience level during his his commercial, which was basically, and, and his approach is pretty consistent. He's like, you know, when I was growing up in Scranton, Pennsylvania, things were hard, but good people, you know, they came together and they helped each other out. And You know, my whole life I've been fighting for people. And, you know, the time that, uh, you know, I ran for for Senate and I achieved my dream to to help people. But then my wife and son got killed in a car accident. Coming back from that Mm. was so hard. And, uh, you know, but I realized that people are up against this sort of thing every day. And, you know, I have the opportunity since I've been in politics and know how it works to like help with people who have these kinds of problems. So, anyway, I'm on your side and I'm Uncle Joe Biden. Like, vote for me. Like, that's basically his pitch. Um, in this this commercial that we we did, and that, that is largely how he presents himself. And it's like that story. Even if you you don't you say you're not planning on voting for him, um, that story has all of those elements. It's like it's got the relatability right away. Like I grew up, you know, a normal person. Um, you know, there's real life problems that we're all dealing with. Also, like here's some things about me that you you know that are novel and you never knew necessarily. And, uh, you know, and things are hard, but uh, we're going to get through it. And um, the warmth there, people overwhelmingly just feel positive feelings. And, and uh, even the people who said they don't prefer him, their brains are saying that they, they believe him and care um, mm-hmm. about what he's saying. Whereas uh, Bernie Sanders, you know, he, among the, uh, the Democrats uh, who were part of this, this survey, he was the, you know, the lead person in the, the survey. Uh, beforehand his ads didn't have that fluency um first of all he didn't narrate his own ads which uh, you know i think was a a downside already it wasn't as relatable and personal Uh, but his ads were like all these clips of like you know the narrator is saying things like you know the working class you know is getting a bad rap and the you know the the people with all the money and the drug companies that are you know taking an outside share and blah 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 and bernie's a fighter and he's You know he's here to help you know reverse this bad situation or whatever it is but it's showing clips of like welders and you know taxi drivers and nurses and um and b-roll and then it has interspersed some some of his story of like him getting arrested in the 60s you know in protests for like civil rights and stuff which is actually a super cool um part of his story but it's just like this montage of these clips And you watch people's brains and it's like, they don't get it. They're like, what am I seeing?
3: Mm -hmm. Um,
2: And they're trying to piece it together. And so they don't remember it and they don't feel good. They actually feel kind of negative.
1: (laughs) This reminds me of like some fragrance ads back in the day. They're just like, what? (laughs) It's just all of these things. Like something, something by Calvin Klein. Like, (laughs) what? Uh, Okay yeah i smell good if i use it maybe what are you what are you saying
3: to me
2: yeah and so it's like a wasted opportunity you're spending all this money on on advertising and people aren't remembering you because they're confused uh meanwhile your competitor who's not saying anything other than like ah shucks i'm a great guy and i really care people are coming away from that being like hell yeah this guy cares even if <laughs> you know what they're saying in the poll doesn't match that and mm-hmm. and this speaks to you know with uh some similar studies, you know, with Clinton versus Trump in 2016, showed that a lot of people, when they watched their ads, they would get very emotionally involved in uh, in Trump's ads, and they would kind of tune out in Clinton's ads, and uh, you know that makes a big difference. The story, regardless of what you think, how you feel, mm-hmm. tends to have an outsized impact on the decisions you make. You know, research shows that we often decide things, we justify how we feel with logic rather than yeah. the other way around. We, we use logic to then determine how we feel. It's actually usually the other way around, which is why our stories are so powerful because they make us feel. To like wrap up the monologue, the ultimate thing that, uh, that causes people to remember and care is instilling emotion because you remember emotion and emotion causes you to care one way or another.
1: Mm-hmm. Okay, well, so those are the elements and that make all the difference. So then in practice, you know, let's say I'm trying to make a point, advocate for a view like we should do this or we should not do this, you know, inside an organization. And so I guess data is going to be a part of it. But from your view, it, it seems like we're going to need more than numbers and bar charts to make a compelling, memorable, emotional case. How would you recommend that we proceed in crafting and delivering a, a great story?
2: Yeah. So, I will say that ultimately in problem solving, you want logic to stand on its own. <laughs> you don't want actually for your feelings really to get in the way of making good decisions. So, I wouldn't advocate using storytelling to persuade people and get people to care about something that they shouldn't do. Um, however, it is really effective at getting attention for something that you believe is right or that should happen. So, let's say um, you know, to use your kind of what you opened up, you have data that shows that a decision should be made, or that a certain thing needs to be raised. And but like with the charity studies, you tell people that a 1000 people are dying, and people don't really register it, or it doesn't motivate them. So you finding a story that has those elements that, you know, people will hook on to, that has something new and surprising. That's easy to get through, and that has tension built in. And wrapping the data into that story is a great way to get people to remember and care and pay attention to spread whatever it is that that you have to say. So, um, you know, you're at work, you're trying to make the case for something. People aren't paying attention. It could be because you're not using a story. When I write uh, in my books, I deliberately use this structure where I will open up a chapter about something important uh, with a story that I leave on a cliffhanger. And then I will get into the research, the data, the science, whatever it is, the medicine.
3: Because
2: mm-hmm. I know that people will, will want to know what the end of the story is. So they slog through, and I try to make it more entertaining than just a slog, but they, they get through the uh, the important part. And then I wrap up the story, that cliffhanger, by uh, with lessons that that data explained. So uh, in that way you're getting everything, but the story is really going to help you remember it. And the story itself is going to help you care enough to get through it. Mm-hmm. So I think that is a strategy generally, whether we're talking about making sales or making a case for something, uh, I think is, uh, is generally the, the framework that I, I like to use. And, and you can be obnoxious about this. Like everything shouldn't start with this like intense story that ends on a cliffhanger or whatever. But, uh, but something that's important that you really do want to sink in. I think that's an, an incredible framework.
1: Yeah, well, and boy, so much of this is clicking into place for me. I'm thinking about, well, one, Bob Cialdini, if you were peeping my shelf, you know, mm-hmm. Influence, Science and Practice and persuasion are some of my favorite all-time books. And that's one of his things is, I guess that's tension, you know? You bring mm-hmm. up a question that remains unresolved, like how could this be? Or what's gonna happen? How does it unfold? And I guess you can use that any time, like, Hey, a customer was furious about this situation. Yeah. They say, da, 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 da. and then, <laughs> and then you just switch over to, we've gotten, you know, 35,000 calls along the this, <laughs> you know, yeah. and then, so then you go through this and they're like, well, yeah, but what about that? <laughs> what about the customer? And then you say, Hey, ultimately we were able to give them what we needed, but uh, it took way more effort than it should have. And here's how it could be easier. Yeah. And now when I'm thinking about the data versus story, I remember, boy, so right now, as we're recording, coronavirus is a hot topic, and mm-hmm. hopefully in the months and years to follow, as people listen to this, they'll be like, oh, I remember that, and it's long gone. But um, I remember I encountered a lot of statistics, you know, news that's like, okay, that's happening. Uh, and it's like, how's that? But you know, is it like really worse than the flu? Is it not worse than the flu? And then when I saw like a Facebook post from a friend of mine who said, hey, I've been doing some shifts as a nurse in the ICU. I tell you what, when you see a few teens who've had no health problems ever fight for their lives on a ventilator, then it really puts in perspective. This is no joke. Stay home, even if you're an extrovert like me. And mm-hmm. uh, I was very persuaded by that story and that image because it was relatable. It's like, oh, I'm a younger-ish you know, person without pre-existing health problems. It was relatable because I know this person, Mm -hmm. but it was new in terms of, oh, here's this person who is engaged in this thing I think I've heard a lot about, but here's her take and experiencing it up close and personal. More relatability, it was in the Chicago area. And then tension, uh uh-oh, I hope they make it. Yeah, And fluency, it was, well, you know, very digestible, bite size, just like a Facebook post, maybe five sentences. So yeah, you know, what a contrast right there in terms of looking at the tables of, of how many, you know, new infections and hospital admissions and deaths that oh, there yeah. have been versus, you know, here's someone I know who's dealing with it head on.
2: Well, and you bring up something that I think is an important subtlety. It's that many a compelling data set has been just utterly dismissed by a good anecdote. And this is something that is not necessarily good, right? Um, and it happens all the time in business. Now, uh, we did the, the research and it says that you know, most of our customers are unhappy with this. And then the head of customer success is like, well, you know, our biggest customer loves it. So your, your research sucks. Uh, moving mm-hmm. on. You know? uh, so there's a danger in that. However, within that is something that's really powerful, which is that if we've made up our minds about something, a story is much more powerful at helping us to reconsider the way that we think uh, than just being barraged with statistics. Hmm. So it, it can be used as a tool that, you know, that can foil us. And we need to be wary of that. However, it's good for us to reassess what we've made our minds up about. So if we're like, yeah, yeah, you know, I'm young. Um, coronavirus isn't going to get me. I've read the statistics. I, I have had a lot of text runs with friends where I've been that guy being like, Hey, you know, we're in our thirties. We're going to be fine. Um, until, you know, I found out that, uh, that people in my life have autoimmune conditions and they're not going to be fine. And suddenly that individual story makes me rethink, well, how dangerous is this?
3: Uh Um,
2: and, uh, and so I think that's, that's healthy and it's important just to, you know, the change agent that it can be, you know, often what we're trying to do in business and life is get people to change or get them to change their minds, um, change their behaviors. And there's a lot of, harder to do that if you're going to argue over stats and studies and this and that than if you use a story to get people to, uh, you know, open the door to changing their minds. And then
1: Mm -hmm.
2: once again, you can weave in those studies and stuff, but we don't often consider evidence because we've already made up our minds. The story is going to help us to be in a place where we will consider new evidence.
1: Yeah, that's handy. And so, well, you gave us one particular approach in terms of, you know, set up a cliffhanger and then, you know, return to it. You've also got this uh, CCO pattern can mm-hmm. you share what is that and how do we do that in our careers
2: so CCO is uh, is kind of the uh, mnemonic for how to systematically tell consistent stories to build a brand or reputation or a movement or a case for something and uh, the CCO stands for create connect and optimize so really the the process of sort of the business of storytelling where we're talking about companies or just the business of me using stories to convince you or connect with you is really you create the story then you get it to people and then you see how it lands and uh and make tweaks so the first time that you tell the story about you know whatever like maybe that i've never in an interview told the story of the great zucchini even though it's one of my favorite stories
1: i feel awesome as an interviewer just for what <laughs> that's people explores. have read
2: it i you know it's not even my story a lot of people have read it but it's a good it's a good example but i'll probably the next time i tell someone that story i'll probably tell it a little bit differently based on how it went this time especially if i'm being you know if i listen to the episode and i really analyze you know how it went and your reactions and i get feedback from you but if, uh, if you're, you're trying to use storytelling for marketing, say, um, then you, you, know, you create content, you put it out on Facebook or whatever your channels are, you connect to people, you email to people, you tell people about it, you see how it's received, and then you optimize it. So you, you change the headlines, you focus in on the parts that people really grabbed onto. Um, you know, this is where analytics uh, really helps, but you, you figure out what it is that, that really is working and not working so you can emphasize those things the next time around, whether changing the story and putting it out there again, or um, just the next story that you're telling, you can say, well, people really do seem to relate to this thing. So I'm going to do more of that. Or, you know, this channel, this place is just a really bad, people are not paying attention here. Um, so I'm going to try a, a new avenue for where to get my stories. And and uh, we call this the flywheel because you go through this process over and over again. You create the story, you connect it with people, and then you optimize, do better next time. And, and I will say another subtlety is this is not about embellishing and lying. That's not what I'm saying, unless you're a fiction writer, in which case, awesome, you know, do that. But it's about figuring out for your audience and for your goal, what is the, the approach and the subset and the emphasis and the the channel that is really going to, to make your story have the best chance of success.
1: hmm yes. Well, so then... Let's talk about the connect bit there. I guess it sounds like much of it is just, hey, just get that in front of some people, whether Mm -hmm. they're in the seat in an auditorium or they are clicking it on their screens. I guess I'd like to get your take on how can we really know what folks want and will connect to? I guess you mentioned analytics. So sure, Mm -hmm. there's that. We can look at the click-through rate and the actions and the cost per act. Acquired customer, etc., and then I guess I'd love your take in terms of whether it's sort of real-time observation. What should I be looking for from a human's face, (laughs) or Uh maybe in advance research in terms of a favorite questions to include in interviews or surveys? Is how do you really know what's likely to connect and resonate with folks?
2: Yeah, I guess you could say that there are three ways to plan out your Content or your story, you can look at past signals. So this is where analytics people always share stories about pumpkins around Halloween time. Whatever you can look at the data um, and and just do that. And this is where a lot of this stuff that you know that I talk about with the neuroscience is like data shows that people really connect to emotional stories, and, and you know you got to get them in the first few seconds with something that they can relate to, and all of that. Um, that can give you guidelines or can get real specific. The second thing is you can predict what people uh, might really connect to. And you can make educated guesses. And that can rely on data or pattern recognition, watching people, whatever it is. And then the third is, I think, the important one that a lot of people leave out, which is you can experiment. So you never know what's going to become the new best practice, because everyone's doing the best practice. Everyone's doing the thing that everyone's doing, so you don't know what's going to be the thing that next goes viral or catches hold or whatever you can maybe predict, but often that thing that next big thing is a surprise so I think you should reserve some amount of your effort for experimentation. I like to use the example of uh, of comedy so I for my first book, I spent a week with the uh, second city in Chicago the oh, yeah. comedy school they yeah they a lot of great comedians you know Stephen Colbert and Tina Fey and, you know, really great famous comedians have come from there, their training program. And, uh, and I spent some time with them and they do this really interesting, clever thing, which is when they, um, they're doing a review, which is like those shows where there's lots of skits and, you know, it's kind of well rehearsed and, and, uh, and well practiced. What they'll often do is they'll slip in test material into the reviews. So they have this show that they know everyone's going to laugh at. Um, and they know that these things are going to hit these jokes, these sketches, and then they're going to put in these two things that they're just going to see what happens. And if no one laughs, then they, they've collected data that that's not going to work. And if people laugh, then they, they keep iterating on it. And it's kind of a version of that create connect optimize. The connect part is the people are already there in the theater. I guess that's mm-hmm. why it came to mind as you brought up auditorium, but they're experimenting not based on what's worked in the past, but based on things that they are throwing out there that might be a killer thing that no one thought about. And so I think that with a content strategy is, uh, is really important. Don't just do repeats of what's worked in the past and don't just try to predict, but actually throw some random stuff, some experiments out there. And maybe, you know, this is a version of the predicting thing, like you're using your intuition, which is just your pattern recognition um, to, uh, to try some things that might work. Sure, either way, um, I think that that's really important and, uh, and so you see that the best media companies often do a version of this. They, they do a lot of, uh, of looking at people's behavior and what resonates with them. They use that to kind of predict what will happen next. But then they also experiment with things uh, some percentage of their time. The analogy in the business world is 3M or Google. You know, they let their engineers spend 20% of their time working on random stuff, whatever they want. In the off chance that one of those things will turn into Gmail, which is where Gmail came from, someone screwing around uh, in their random twenty percent experimentation time. So, I think that that part is really important.
1: Mm-hmm. Well, Shane, tell me anything else you want to make sure to mention before we shift gears and hear about some of your favorite things.
2: I would say the most powerful thing you can do before you even you know want to get into the nitty gritty of you know training and better storytelling is uh, is Think about stories that you love. And I think movies and TV shows and books are like a great place to do this. Think about stories that you love and, and watch them or read them again and take notes and actually break down how the story goes. I've done this a lot as a writer, taking movies that I love and just like taking notes, which is a really nerdy way to watch a movie. Take notes on how the story goes. Like what are the scenes? Where is the tension being set up? Just being thoughtful about analyzing stories that you like will help you to build up the muscles of exercising um, you know, those elements of stories in whatever context you're doing. And if you you, know, you break down 10 action movies that you love, that can definitely meaningfully impact the way that you tell stories just you know, to get to know people or as a salesperson or whatever. So I would recommend that. Like, you know Training stuff is great. And I would, I would love people to check out my stuff. But, uh, but actually be a nerd and break down stories that you love and see what the patterns are there. Um, chances are those are the kinds of stories that will be more comfortable for you to emulate um, or use pieces out of yourself.
1: All right, cool. Well, now could you share a favorite quote, something you find inspiring?
2: So lately, my new favorite quote has been When you know better, you do better. This is uh, an Oprah and Maya Angelou one, but I think it's really true. Mm-hmm. When you know better, you do better. It's the best excuse for. Continually learning, and for for that thing that I mentioned earlier, being willing to reassess what you think and reassess your conclusions. Because if you know better, you're going to do better. Even if it's a little bit painful to realize that you've been wrong about something.
3: Uh
1: And how about a favorite study or experiment or bit of research?
2: Most recent favorite study is uh, is about kids and trust. So I've been been doing a lot of writing around teamwork and and innovation, and uh, and trust is a really big factor in those things. And I think it also plays into, um, you know stories can help us to build trust if the stories are empathetic and help you get to know people. Um, but there's really interesting study about kids and trust. Um, basically researchers put a bunch of kids in a room and, uh, and then made it clear that something was wrong, that something was going wrong. And then they would have an adult authority figure come in and tell the kids that everything was fine and everything was gonna be fine. Hmm. And what they found is that the kids' stress levels spiked more at the part when they were told things were going to be fine. And they were more stressed out Mm. upon realizing that an authority figure and an adult was lying to them or sugarcoating to them than they were about the bad thing. And I like this study because I I think it does speak to human nature that, you know, kids are perceptive. Adults, you know, are, are perceptive too. I think in many ways we should be way more perceptive, but, uh, we are way worse off when someone tries to sugarcoat the truth or shade the truth or uh, you know, push away uh, the bad news than we are with the bad news. And, uh, and so I think it's, I like this study because it, it gives a little bit more uh, of, of a reason to, to be honest and to, to not try to make things easy on people because actually sometimes making things easy on people is actually going to make things harder on them creates more stress, and it, you know, it erodes your trust. So I, I like that study of late. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite book? The book I've recommended the most to people the last couple of years is called A Book About Love by Jonah Lehrer. It's about the neuroscience and psychology of love, not just sort of romantic love, but um, friendship and, um, and love of self, self-compassion. And, uh, and it's also kind of a, a redemption story Sorry about learning to forgive yourself after you've done something wrong. Um, One of the most insightful, life-changing books that I've read in a long time. And I bought it for like 30 people at this point. So a book about love.
1: Mm, Cool. And how about a favorite tool, something you use to be awesome at your job?
2: The tool I use the most is Evernote. I like it for the flexibility of being able to clip stuff from the internet. I like it for helping me to get over FOMO when I might be distracted by an article. So it's similar to Pocket, where you have an article up and you can save it for later rather than having to read it now. So Evernote has a clipper that you can do that. Um, because if I'm working, I'm trying to focus on something and someone sends me something interesting or I come across a side tangent, I worry that if I don't read it now, I'm going to miss it or you know, I, I just am going to have it get sucked in. But saving it for later, clipping it down, eases that anxiety or that FOMO or, or curiosity because I know I'll get to it later. And I can stay focused and not get distracted. So that's, that's one that's really been useful. Mm-hmm. And how about a favorite habit? I like to think of actually a ritual that I have for my writing, uh, a way for me to get into my own personal flow or zone when I want to write is I have, uh, I'll show you, the listeners won't, won't to be able to see it, but I have this little coyote figurine mm-hmm. that a friend of mine gave. Uh, and what I do is when I'm getting ready to buckle down and write, which is often hard to do, you procrastinate, you do all those things, and, and you, know, you feel blocked. Um, I have a specific routine that I go through, and it culminates with me putting the little coyote on my laptop. And uh, when the coyote's there, then I'm in writing mode. There's actually some science to this that superstitious routines and rituals, um, they're not magic, but they do work because they can help your brain. Calm down and get into sort of a, a place of focus. So when baseball players do like all the crazy moves before they get up to bat, that's actually helping them to calm down and get into a place where they can focus on on their their performance. So I do that with my little ritual of my coffee and my my baby coyote figurine. Oh, thank you.
1: And is there a particular nugget you share that you're known for? It's quoted back to you often.
2: Probably the most common quote I see tweeted or or people react to is. Uh, you know, I I think it's cheesy, just because I think a lot of quotes are cheesy, but I think it's absolutely true. Um, It's that genius is less about the size of your mind than about how open it is. Uh So history shows that really, really smart people are often outperformed or out clevered by open minded and flexible people who are willing to do things, not just really smart in one direction, but are willing to consider lots of options.
1: Mm -hmm. And if folks want to learn more or get in touch, where would you point them?
2: Uh, Just my website, shanesnow.com. It has everything, articles, books, training courses, and and my social media. Mm -hmm.
1: And do you have a final challenge or call to action for folks looking to be awesome at their jobs?
2: So relevant to right now, but I think, you know, people listen to this after the quarantine's over. um, There's a a tool that... um, that I made. That's it's a free tool. It's called the work style quiz. Um, that uh, the challenge would be either use this tool or spend a few minutes doing this, uh, which is figure out your unique way of working and share that with the people you collaborate with most. So this my work style quiz asks a bunch of questions that are that seem small and insignificant, but they add up. Uh, that when people are more aware of how you work best, um, including yourself. Then people will work better with you. So things like, do you do your clearest thinking in the morning, in the middle of the day, at night? Um, when and how are you best able to get into a flow when you you probably don't want to be distracted? Um, what's the best way to get a hold of you in an emergency? What's the best way to get a hold of you with something that can wait a little bit, but is important? Spelling those out, so taking a little quiz or thinking through those things to spell those out for the people you collaborate with makes a huge difference so that people will contact you, communicate with you in ways that help you to work better because they know it'll help them to work better. And also if you do make an effort um, to accommodate people's different work situations and styles, then that builds trust, which will then hopefully be reflected on you and help you get your work done too.
1: Hmm. Well, Shane, this has been a treat. Thank you and good luck
2: at all the stories you're telling. I appreciate it, thank you.
1: Well, I dug Shane's wisdom. I hope you did too. And I think the thing that I remember the most... it's so meta, it's about memory, is that indeed we really do remember more when they are in story format. I'm thinking about, so I read a lot of business books, you might've guessed, (laughs) from this show. And those that are in a fable situation, at first I used to resist them a little bit, like, oh my gosh, this fable, it's not even a real story. It's not even data or true case study. But sure enough, I found that I remembered things more, whether it's leadership and self-deception from the Arbinger Institute, excellent. Or any of Pat Lynchoni's fables. Excellent. I really do recall a lot of those messages and details more. And I think about even something like weight training or fitness stuff. Like, like, there's a lot of sort of like facts and practices and protocols you quote unquote should do to get better results. And studies that come from it. And nonetheless, I remember this series I read. Oh my gosh, I might have been like 20. Called A Bodybuilder Is Born. It was like from a column in a magazine that was online. I remembered a lot of those kind of fitness things more just because they were in a story. It's like, even if you know what they're trying to do, it works. So, hey, hopefully you've got real stories about real people, which connect all the more powerfully than fables, but fables aren't bad. So another tool in the toolkit. Again, the show notes, the transcript, the links to items we've referenced are at awesomeatyourjob.com slash ep570. If you haven't already, I hope you'll push subscribe. You'll catch our next guest, Dr. Ivan Joseph, has some pro tips